you're looking to change things up in your classroom. You'd like to see more student participation and interest, or you really need a better way to tap into each student's individual abilities. Maybe you're happy with everything in your classroom and you're just that teacher who will stop at nothing to provide the very best opportunities for your students so you're always open to hear more good news. Well, let me personally welcome you to the Student-Centered Science Teacher Podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Carosis. I'm a secondary science teacher with 11 years experience teaching at-risk students in a distance learning cyber model. And yet, I've realized success in my efforts to plan for and execute student-centered learning. See, I believe that a science teacher's job goes beyond transferring specific content knowledge. Rather, I believe our duty is to prepare students for life beyond our walls, to help develop them into informed, active members of society who can confidently make all kinds of decisions. So on this podcast, our discussions will focus on strategies to promote active learning in the classroom and their outcomes, as well as creating and nurturing a culture that enables students to take ownership of their learning by planning next steps and implementing our feedback. Here, we believe that our classrooms are learning laboratories, not just for students, but also for teachers. You'll always get encouragement to keep on experimenting because what you do and how you do it matters. Let's jump into today's topic. So far, I've focused most of this podcast on my own research, my own classroom experiences before I made the switch to student-centered learning, my own framework for lesson planning to support student-centered learning, and successes I've had with doing all this in a virtual learning environment. Today, though, I want to move in a slightly different direction and start talking about execution. I want to help you prepare for some things you might encounter or considerations you might want to consider, you know, before you start, before you dip your your toes into that student-centered pool, or if and when you have decided to go all in and make the switch from traditional classroom practices to those that call upon students to do the hard work of learning. Just like the research and the lesson planning I've spoken on so far, though, I have personally either considered these changes, these obstacles, or I've directly experienced them. They're a result of regular, careful reflection upon research and experience, a practice that is so, so critical in our profession. And there's lots that I could talk about. I have a series of five or six things I'm going to present to you, but one at a time, Today, we're going to start only with what does the teacher do? What is your role in the student-centered classroom? And I've discussed this in the context of some of my other episodes before. So if you're a regular listener, some of what I have to say today might be redundant for you. But you know what? In my opinion, and speaking from someone who needed this so much when I was starting, If you're really ready to shake things up in your science classroom so your students become masters of the scientific method, then you can't hear this enough. Consider it the first of my more inspirational episodes. Dr. Sirhart Kurt of the website Educational Technology, and you can find him at educationaltechnology.com, has written extensively on the constructivist learning theory. 
I gotta say that slow because it tongue ties me. (laughs) Constructivist learning theory is based on the premise that people construct knowledge and meaning from experiences. Pretty much everything I've been preaching on here. Educational movements, including inquiry-based learning, active learning, experiential learning, discovery learning, and knowledge building are all variations of constructivism. Someday I want to do a series on all those so that I can more clearly understand the differences between them, you know, why you would pick one over the other. But for the sake of my own work and for the sake of talking to you right now, we're going to just call all student-centered strategies a constructivist approach. They all fall under this umbrella. So no matter what specific lesson plan you do choose to adopt, this applies to you. His article is exceptional, in my opinion, and will take a lot to digest. <laughs> There's so much to dig through and highlight there. But today, I just want to focus on the first in his list of four key areas crucial to the success of a constructivist classroom. And I quote, The instructor takes on the role of facilitator instead of director. Hmm. So what does that really mean? That's what we want to get to today. I mean, if I'm standing at the front of the room disseminating information while my students furiously scribble down notes and they're acing their tests, I'm a great facilitator of learning, right? I would argue not so much. When these authors refer to teachers as facilitators, they usually go on to describe this as a supporting role. You know, it makes me think of the Oscars. The Oscars give out awards to the best actor and the best actress, right? In the constructivist student-centered classroom, the best actor and actress are our students. The analogy there is they're the students. As a student-centered science classroom teacher, you'll earn the award for best supporting actor or best supporting actress. It doesn't sound glamorous, for sure. I bet each and every would-be actor and actress who moved to Hollywood dreamt of the coveted best award, not the best supporting award. But chew on this. Could the best actor or the best actress have achieved that status without a supporting counterpart to provide the critical dialogue, drama, romance, or suspense that allowed that best actor or actress to really shine? Feel free to pause to think on that. <laughs> I want to provide sometimes a dramatic silence because you really should like think on that. It's like, hmm. When I initially came to understand this principle, I looked at it in a much, much more juvenile but fun way. I saw my new role as one parallel to that of a variety show host or game show host, where my students were the contestants. Those that hearken to mine most closely for me are Kermit the Frog from The Muppet Show. Yes, I am an 80s baby. And more recently, more popular, probably now, Terry Crews from the more updated and universally popular America's Got Talent. I mean, Kermit the Frog technically hosted a variety show too, so it's okay to put them in the same bucket, right? Both these hosts are stars in their own right. You know who I'm talking about without me sharing a picture with you. They are famous 
but what do they do on their respective shows? At the onset of the show, we're first introduced to them. They're the first thing we encounter. They smile and maybe in a fun, entertaining way, set the stage, literally, for what's to come in the show. They bring the hype. Kermit the Frog always told a few jokes and teased the audience with a reveal of that week's special guest. Terry Crews introduces the judges. Both of them talk a little bit about each of the acts before they appear on stage and maybe interview them when they're done. When you're delivering student-centered science lessons in an effective way, you're basically doing the same thing. You're introducing the day's lesson objectives, providing students with the space and tools they need to perform, allowing them to perform, and interviewing when, them, when they're finished. Of course, that part is a little oversimplified in the analogy, since there's more to the tail end of the process than that. We would never want to jump directly from allowing them to, quote, perform, observing and testing through experimentation in our science classroom to, quote, interviewing them, basically testing them. No, no, no. There's an ongoing back and forth involved in that latter portion of the process. That's when your role as teacher becomes that of coach until the concepts and the skills are well honed. Now, I've come to learn that several teachers in my audience who listen and write to me and read what I have to say are second career science teachers, which is totally cool. I didn't think our breed was so plentiful, but I've come to meet so many teachers like me who've spent time in the science industry long before we made the very purposeful decision to step into a science classroom. Shout out to you, second career science teachers. It's very possible that in your time in industry, you heard the term servant leadership. I first learned about servant leadership in the analytical chemistry consumables firm at which I worked for four years prior to earning my chemistry teaching certification. Maybe you've always been a teacher, but you heard about this through some other means. My husband manages a concert arena. In his endless management trainings and retreats, he's heard plenty of talks on servant leadership. And by proxy, I've heard about them too. As a practitioner of student-centered learning, I would suggest that our role, your role, my role, as supporting actor or actress, our roles as game show or variety show hosts, is ultimately that of the servant leader. Mark Tarallo of SHRM, the Society for Human Resource Management, describes servant leaders as, quote, a revolutionary bunch, taking the traditional power leadership model and turning it completely upside down. In business, this literally puts managers at the bottom of the hierarchy and employees at the top. There is perhaps no better description or caption we can assign to that visual than the word support. He continues, noting that Quote, these leaders possess a serve-first mindset focused on empowering and uplifting those who work for them. They are serving instead of commanding, showing humility instead of brandishing authority, and always looking to enhance the development of their staff members in ways that unlock potential, creativity, and a sense of purpose. 
Whew. Transport yourself back to the classroom now. Isn't that exactly our goal as teachers? I mean, exactly. In fact, that might have been a little bit heavy and maybe a little too fast. Let me take a stab at paraphrasing it in a way that provides emphasis on the most critical terms that apply to us in our environments. He said that servant leaders empower, they uplift and enhance development of people. They don't command or brandish authority. And the results? He claims they unlock potential, unlock creativity, and unlock a sense of purpose in people. What amazing managers we'll have in business and schools someday if we adopt this posture in our classrooms now, and that's what our students encounter on the regular, right? One more quote from Mr. Torello that I can personally echo and provide some additional anecdotes about. He writes, quote, If you have selfish motivations, then you are not going to be a good servant leader. It has to be less about you. Anyone else thinking heavy? That is heavy. This weekend, my kids, for the first time, saw Back to the Future. We watched all three movies. And, you know, that's a reference throughout the movies. He refers to it as, you know, situations heavy, like cool or heavy. You You know, heavy. Anyway, not everyone has this problem. You're going, what? She's selfish? She's all about herself? Maybe you do think that of me. I don't know, but... It's not a problem everyone has. In fact, when I talk to teachers, I'm, I'm usually ashamed to admit that. Um, but I'm talking to the world here, so, and I really want to make an impression. And I want to be as authentic and real with you as I can to tap into that part of you who might be feeling the same way, honestly. But not everyone can relate. We all have our own unique demons. In past episodes, I've talked to you about this very nature in me that is excellence and growth, that that's what I'm striving for and that's what I'm constantly chasing after. Those are demons. They sound like positive things, right? They're like positive words. What do you mean they're a demon? Oh, everything has a good and a bad side to it, trust me. I recently took a free Enneagram test online. If you don't know what Enneagrams are, super fun to look up. Do it. It was fun, and I'd recommend you also find one. Take one to see how closely your results describe who you know yourself to be. For the record, if you want to read about me, I'm an Enneagram 1 with a 2 wing. You can have a wing, (laughs) which is sort of like a a motivation, a driving force, a secondary piece of you. Essentially, I have a tendency toward perfectionism. Uh, um, I've called it excellence. Where helping others is that two wing. It's my driving force. It is pretty much spot on. And while I didn't need a test to tell me who I was and what makes me tick, it was freeing to know that the there are strengths to this personality that I struggle with, truth, truthfully. Aspects of it I need to be proactive about, especially during times of stress. So just throwing that out there in case it might be helpful to you too in the classroom or in your home. Anyway, these, what I call demons of mine, they didn't surface during the first few years of my teaching career. 
But I also remember didn't become a teacher because I was like, yay, I love everyone. (laughs) I spent a lot of time just floundering when I started out teaching, trying to process all I was experiencing. I think most of us do. Then, eventually, these aspects of my personality sucked me into believing that I could be teacher of the year. Can I tell you how much I'd really actually love to be teacher of the year? I mean... (laughs) It was my driving force for becoming a teacher, but once I was in the role, I was kind of bound and determined to be teacher of the year, even if no one ever gave me an award to recognize that they agreed I was. As a teacher in a school who requires weekly team data analysis, the numbers were always front and center, and the numbers were never good. There were years that, now I'm not lying, 70% of students in my class failed unit tests and whole semesters. I am not exaggerating, I swear, and I'm not bragging about that either. (laughs) It is not a bullet point I would put on my resume. And not to place blame, but I will just remind you if you are new here that my population is at-risk reluctant learners. Teenagers in a chemistry class written and designed for college prep, those students sometimes had a fifth and sixth grade math ability. So it's important to always keep everything in context, right? But that was the problem. My brain didn't put it in context. Believe it or not, that kind of data wasn't altogether uncommon for cohorts at my virtual cyber school among any teacher. Not in classes that didn't offer enough extra credit at the end to make up enough points to pass anyway. I mean, you have teachers who do that. Or just reopen tests for unlimited retakes until a passing grade is achieved. I was never that teacher, and I will never be that teacher. I assume strongly that if you're listening to me, if you found me, you and I are on the same sort of wavelength and we would agree that that's not an indication of learning. And that assessments, while wholly not a reflection of what has been learned, they're the best we have. So to minimize them to just continually retaking them is kind of like, eh. Anyway, it wasn't until 2018 when my students' poor performance persisted and they stopped even acknowledging me. No lie, it was as if zombies had sucked out their brains over winter break. They didn't even say hello or engage in casual conversation when they entered class or when I started class. So you can imagine how much more awful questioning went. I mean, I'm teaching a lesson, I'm asking a question, people won't say hello, so are they going to answer me? Mm, No. Volunteers, double no. It just didn't happen. For reasons like this, March is never a shining month for me, even in my best years. As spring tries to emerge, we still have a lot of dark, rainy, or snowy days here in Pennsylvania. And we're in the throes of teaching stoichiometry, the single most challenging content for my students in the entire course. Having endured day after day of crickets, I not proudly, but usually, let myself become seriously depressed. (laughs) What I didn't even realize at the time, 
that which I can be open and honest about now is that the origins of those feelings, that depression, that hopelessness, were focused squarely on me and my performance. No, I wasn't thrilled my students were failing. But my main concern was that the data suggested I wasn't even meeting the expectations of my role. In the midst of my outright anger, my Enneagram One personality prompted me to find my own faults through reflection. Eventually, it was actually my super self-centered perspective that led me to ask, what am I doing wrong? I had to admit that I was blaming students for their poor performance and really not taking any blame for the results or the climate in my virtual classroom. After all, I thought I deserved Teacher of the Year award. Meanwhile, maybe my students were on the other side of that screen talking with their parents blaming me for whatever wasn't happening in the classroom that they didn't know they needed. And that's it, isn't it? Our students, even those of you who teach high school like me, Our students are children. They don't know what they need. We endured years of education and continue with professional development to learn more about what they need and how to provide it. And we're paid to plan for and deliver that. When what we're doing doesn't work, we need to respond and change until we find what works. Now, I get it. Some teachers can't tolerate or aren't willing to enact huge change or feel that too much change at one time doesn't allow us to really determine what the problem was to begin with or what part of this huge change actually made a difference. The change you decide, to me, if you're a teacher like I was, doesn't need to be monumental. It just needs to reflect the mindfulness that As teachers who work with human spirits, with a range of backgrounds and experiences, we will always have more to learn. I had selfish motivations. I wanted to see good data. Heck, I wanted to see great data. And I have so far failed to mention that I was able to nearly, near effortlessly, get great data from my honors level students. But I was inspired by the challenge of working primarily with my college prep level students. And when I made the entire process less about me and more about them through intentional planning and supporting execution characterized by a coaching relationship in which there was a constant give and take, my students unlocked their potential and demonstrated their creativity, acknowledging repeatedly in notes of appreciation of my serve-first mindset. And this all sounds very transcendental, but it's not. (laughs) There are a few simple recommendations I can make to to facilitate your transition from traditional classroom leadership to this servant classroom leadership stance. Number one, plan your lessons to include active verbs in your success criteria or objectives. The key here, Make sure you're requiring the students to take ownership of those action verbs. Plan for them to observe, to calculate, to classify, to organize, to describe, to explain, to summarize, to list, and so on and so on. 
if you're the one always modeling these action verbs for your students every day and relying on them to just take the notes, you're simply not providing them with the most rich learning experience possible. Two, physically distribute yourself throughout the classroom. If you spend more than half the class at the front of the room looking at students, with them all collectively looking back, you're missing out on unique learning opportunities and huge relationship building opportunities. First, it's not nearly as easy, if possible at all, to differentiate content, process, or product when you're always interacting with the whole group. Second, even if the students in your group don't really require differentiated content, process, or product, they'll all benefit from some one-on-one time with you because you're the content expert. Here's where you can puff out your chest a little, revel in that big, huge brain, and because more than likely, you are the subject matter expert. Respond to questions with questions. One of the greatest values in working with small groups and individuals in a classroom as they explore a system in your science class will be prompting them to think more deeply than what they may be limited to seeing or experiencing or about other scenarios to which their new knowledge could be applied, even exceptions or misconceptions to what they think they've learned. And finally, praise, praise, praise. You'll reap the benefits of happy students when they're recognized for doing things well. Even if their entire process or idea wasn't entirely correct, find something to praise. Aim to provide a glow and grow in each of your comments to small groups and individuals. This is how you uplift students and nurture feelings of support, feelings of being served. We'll stay on this track next week as I continue this series of things to consider when making the switch to student-centered learning. If you'd like to jump ahead or follow along with me throughout the coming weeks, or if you usually listen to me while driving in the car or while doing chores, I have some notes for you. You can download the free guide when you share your email at www.labineverylesson.com slash considerations. And if this was the first episode of the podcast you've heard and you're as interested in planning for a student-centered science classroom as you are interested in leading one, you can download the details of my five-element framework for planning interactive science lessons on my website at www.labineverylesson.com slash five elements and use the number five there. Remember, you can always respond to this episode with comments or questions in the community Sign up for free, completely free, at community.labineverylesson.com. In fact, I'd love to know which game show host or variety show host you will channel this year to get this hard work of servant leadership done. Share it in the community. I look forward to hearing your student-centered stories. Enjoy the week, everyone. <laughs>